for joining. If I haven't met you, my name is Elizabeth Bromley. I'm the director of the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. I know many of you, I go by Beth, um, really always happy to hear from any of you when you reach out um, with thoughts about the work that you're doing, uh, insights about how we, the Public Mental Health Partnership, can support you with training or technical assistance. Uh, uh, so nice to have that dialogue. Um, today, I'm going to talk with you about, and with you, I mean that intentionally, I'm going to ask to hear from you and ask you to engage with one another as, as well. Video vignette created by KSA Productions, Remy Kessler, who's here with us, and you'll see others featured in the video who you may know from outreach work. Uh, a brief video vignette that illustrates a creative intervention. And we're gonna use that vignette to explore some ethical dilemmas that come into play when we're uh, working with individuals with severe mental illness, particularly in outreach. First thing we're going to do is watch our video. There was a woman in Silver Lake. And this woman had taken up the entire bus stop area. Some things were trash, some things were her belongings. And the outreach team had, uh, in the local area, had been making diligent efforts. But my efforts at the time in my outreach team were completely fruitless. And nothing that I offered, whether it was a voucher at a motel, a bed at a shelter, lunch, none of these things offered her any motivation to want to accept anything at all. She was an older, mid-70-year-old uh, Latina woman who just wanted people to leave her alone. And why couldn't she sleep on the bus stop? It became very clear to, her, to us that she was nested and she was going nowhere. Molly asked me to call an LAPD officer that knew her that it was aware of her, that had been at the department there for 30 years, to basically meet us one day. And Molly basically told this long-standing member of the Los Angeles Police Department that in order for Housing Works to help her and to begin the process of getting her into an environment that was safe, he needed to play a role. So, Mr. Police Officer, we need for you and your partner to show up on this day at this time and start to apply some pressure, letting her know that if she doesn't gather her belongings and leave, that you will be forced to, to have to um, move that along for her. Basically asked this officer to basically threaten and intimidate to arrest the woman. And the officer looked at her, at Molly, like, you're nuts. Based on Molly's directions, this officer got in his car, he turned his lights on, he put the siren on, he pulled up to the encampment, he came out of the car with the handcuffs, walked up to the participant and said, I'm having to take you in. It's time for me to take you to jail. She was very upset, uh, yelling at them and engaging in, in a heavy conversation with them. And Molly allowed this to go on for a few more minutes until she and Selena walked in and told the officer, officer. Oh my goodness, this, why is this happening? Officer, can you give us a moment just to try and, and talk to her? Don't take her to jail. We are from Housing Works. We are offering her a hotel and the chance to stay in this hotel a few miles from here instead of jail. What do you say? And the officer said, okay, but only if she goes with you. And we convinced her that she should allow us to help her get into a motel and we would pay for it. And she said, yes, I'll go with them to the hotel. And the officer basically watched her collect her three or four things that she wanted, climb into the car with Selena and Molly, and go to the motel. And when they arrived in the motel, it started a series of events that eventually led to her being housed. So none of this was just like a random pick up the phone call, call LAPD. It's really about, it's a true testament about who you know. It's all about who you know. Because if you know the right people on the inside, it's easier to facilitate an orchestrated inter intervention and have it be successful. I, I think this example for me is one that demonstrates the level of collaboration 
and the fact that if we are willing to look a little bit outside of those boundaries that we are told that we have to stay in, we can accomplish some very enormous and incredible things. Thinking about what is being presented in this vignette, you know, it speaks to something very fundamental about outreach work. What do you do when you're working with someone and they aren't okay? Maybe they need some treatment, maybe you're really not able to know that they're okay, and yet they don't want to move. And this goes on and on and on and on and on. You reach an impasse and you're sort of stuck thinking, well, what, what, what do I do? But you watched it and you had a different way of framing. I, it came to mind if it is perhaps manipulative. But sometimes our clients are just, they're not ready. Mm -hmm. And like you talked about, there are situations where you feel like you have to make a choice, where you can't let this go on. Mm -hmm. But the action itself, didn't sit well from like an ethical standpoint, though I'm very happy for the outcome of that she got housing. Yeah, I, I mean, it was manipulative, uh, a lie. And they'll, they'll have to maintain that fiction. I can completely understand her perspective, but we were left with no recourse when you consider the rules and the rigidity of the systems that we were told we were supposed to go through. This was really the last resort because eventually, she would have been displaced from that bus stop. She was quickly declining and making decisions that were going to continue affecting her ability to thrive and she was gonna further deteriorate pretty quickly. So the pressure, if there was pressure, was pressure out of her health and well-being and the concern that people had for the fact that she had deteriorated quite quickly. So we took a gamble because at some point the police were going to show up and at some point she would be moved along in a way that would have harmed her. But what if someone is really saying, I'm living in this spaceship and it's totally fine with me to live in this spaceship. I don't need everything I need. I have a, another spaceship that comes and brings me supplies. I'm totally fine here. No, thank you, I don't need any housing. So you say, you know, it turns out we have this other spaceship available over here down the street. It happens to be one with like a door and a bathroom and a kitchen. And the only trick is we've got to somehow get her to move. Yeah, I just trick. Like, <laughs> they, it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to resort to tricks. I think the problem with the traditional paradigm to supportive service provision is that we want to adhere to a blanketed approach. Here's, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's what, it, it doesn't work that way. I think we always want to think creatively as a team. They should think out of the box, but this kind of illustrated, mm -hmm. we're gonna make this choice on behalf of the client, and mm -hmm. we know it's right because I've been in the field this yeah. long and yeah. I got this. I think intuition and trusting your gut is a big piece of working in this field, but I've seen so many boundaries get crossed in the wrong way, and mm -hmm. I think as clinicians, we wanna right. think creatively, but we also want to maintain our ethics so we can stay in the field for 20 years, Right, hopefully. right. We don't just rely on instinct or gut. Before we make any decision, we try to give ourselves the advantage of knowing every possible aspect of what's been done to support this individual. This worked for this one special mm. scenario, yeah. and that is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it should not be a standard that we set because it can turn violent, mm -hmm. it could be traumatic, mm -hmm. it just has the potential to go in the other mm -hmm. way. Yeah, no, I totally agree with the clinician in that it's not something, a blanketed approach that should be taught as a standard practice. If it's not done in a way that is extremely mindful and careful, it could go south very quick. We all want to see the outcome we think is best for the person that we are working with. In outreach, we don't know them. We don't know their, their life history and all that they've been through. And yeah. there's a lot that happens before you end up on a bus bench with all your belongings. And it's usually pretty mm -hmm. sad and hard mm -hmm. and unfortunate. Mm -hmm. yeah.
Okay. Uh, we'd love to hear thoughts, impressions in the chat. I'm going to walk through just a review of kind of the key things we heard within the video itself. Um, just the story at the beginning was about what happened, what the scenario was. Uh, and we heard about diligent efforts, efforts that were fruitless, offering an array of things, none of which she had any and to accept. Uh, we heard about uh, her response, why can't I just sleep on the bus bench? And there was a description of her as nested, going nowhere. And then what happened was one of the outreach workers asked the supervisor to uh, call someone at LAPD uh, who know, was aware of her, knew her, a uh, very senior member of the department, and to uh, do this thing with her, tell her that we can't help her uh, 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 unless you will play along. We need for you to show up, put some pressure on her. Let her know you'd be forced to have to move her uh, along unless, sorry, you'd have to be forced to help her move unless, uh, uh, you know, she makes a choice to work with outreach. Uh, uh, and that's what happened. Uh, police officers went along, said, we're going to take you to jail. She became very upset. Uh, outreach workers came in. Why is this happening? Give us a moment. Don't take her to jail. Uh, we have a solution for her. And she agrees. And she goes along uh, to a hotel with them. And that started a series of events that uh, uh, ended up resulting in housing for her. And then the second part of the video, we had some differing opinions about what to make of this, uh, what to think about the intervention itself. Uh, on the one hand, it's a testament to the importance of collaboration, uh, having good partners, having uh, an, uh, an array of partners that can help you accomplish a goal for a client. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's perhaps uh, manipulative, uh, clients telling you she's not ready. Uh, it doesn't sit well from an ethical standpoint, is what Jean said. It was a lie, they'll have to maintain that lie. In response, uh, outreach said we were left with no recourse, really the last resort. We were working within all the rules we had. But you know, nothing was uh, working, nothing was getting fixed. She was declining, we were more and more worried about her. The pressure was out of her health and her well-being. And if we hadn't done it, she was gonna be moved in some way and it would have been much more traumatic or more harmful for her. In fact, the police could have decided they needed to take her to jail at some point. Uh, so we decided we had to act. What do you do if you have someone who is delusional, thinks they're living in a spaceship, uh, but mm, we tricked her, they had to uh, resort to a trick, uh, and that doesn't feel right ethically. Uh, this problem with supportive service provision is here's the problem, here's the solution. Doesn't work that way. Again, outreach saying we tried to work within the tools we were given, but they weren't uh, having any impact for this woman. And uh, we're gonna make the right choice, the thing that's right to do for this person that we're working with to make sure that she's safe. And we, we, we don't take that uh, decision lightly. We think through every angle. We uh, try to know every aspect of what's been going on to support this individual before we make that choice. Um, should not be a standard that we set. Sure, this is unusual. Um, Truth is, we're all really on the same team here. We all want to see the outcome that's best for the client we're working with. And at the same time, we don't know our clients very well all the time. We don't quite know how they got to where they are, and we make choices for them. And that uh, is a, a, a little challenging to see at times. Let's use the chat a little bit. I'm so interested to hear your initial impression. What sticks with you? What are you thinking about? formal application of helping this client wasn't working. Yeah, I was so struck by Selena's comment that 
we think there's a problem and then a solution um, and it often doesn't work that way. And, you know, one reason is you could offer a solution to a client and they say no for reasons you just, you can't fathom. Why on earth would they say no to this solution I have for them? And yet it happens all the time. Um, and they had to create something informal, outside the box, uh, something different. As everyone admitted, not a thing you do in a standard way. It's not a textbook intervention that you would be taught in training. But in this situation, it was, uh, from their point of view, the right thing to do for the right reasons. They had to take an informal approach that created ethical questioning. Um, yeah, was it coercive or not? Exactly. Anytime we start to step outside of our normal routines, right? Our normal practice, the normal array of things we might do with a client, it can raise some complex ethical questions, uh, ones that we often shouldn't contend with all by ourselves. We need others to, to weigh in, which clearly happened in this situation. A lot of people weighing in on what best to do and uh, what's acceptable. Uh, very important. Other thoughts, impressions, takeaways that you have from uh, watching that video? Do, was it helpful to watch it twice? Uh, there's so much in it. I, I feel like it's, uh, it warrants a couple of watches, especially uh, as we're going to talk about it a bit. So we have a comment in the chat. Um, teamwork with law enforcement when there's a dangerous situation. This was a, a not, a, you know, risky situation. Um, one that didn't entail, could have, but did not entail something uh, explosive or dangerous, uh, but having a strong relationship with law enforcement is, can be so useful and, uh, and, and important, and especially since things can escalate into a situation that requires a hold. This event seems so realistic, indeed, um, quite realistic, uh, and actually, as rare as it is, it's a very familiar scenario, I think, for, for anyone doing outreach. This is the sort of thing that happens now and again. The ethical dilemma of safety and health versus self-determination. Exactly. The ideals we have are legitimate as far as preserving agency and not using manipulation or restraint. But sometimes we face things on the street types of pathologies that uh, really reflect the inadequacy of our resources uh, that, that mean that we end up doing things uh, uh, not within the bounds. I think it's so true. I mean, um, particularly in outreach with very ill, complex clients, they break all the rules, right? I mean, they, they're not textbook cases either. They've been through so much and uh, their challenges and uh, uh, and limitations are just so profound at times that we too, we end up uh, kind of needing to bend the rules a bit. Yeah, the systems we operate in don't always uh, bend in the way that we need. So uh, wonderful, thank you so much. That's exactly on point. We're gonna uh, proceed through a, a little bit of information. I've divided up the kinds of discussion points we could have about this vignette into three sections. And uh, um, I'm gonna begin with sort of uh, what we think of as fairly fundamental ethical principles that guide what we do in really all clinical work. Uh, and we'll talk about autonomy and beneficence. Um, so several of you in the chat have actually already brought up these ideas as uh, uh, principles that guide our choices, our decision-making in clinical work. Um, there are others, of course, but autonomy and beneficence are two pretty core principles that shape what we uh, decide we're able to do, uh, things that, that place a boundary around our uh, clinical work with clients and, and put very simply, autonomy is the right to self-determination and beneficence is the right to have, have something good come to you. Um, in other words, the clients have the right to receive good care. A clinician is supposed to be doing something good for the client 
And clients also have a right to make their own choices. And we as clinicians are there to support clients in making their own choices and helping them to understand what they want and need. Uh, so that's a very simple definition of autonomy and beneficence, two of our obligations in our clinical work. Sometimes we can call autonomy a goal of supporting self-determination. We do that in so many ways. Not only do we uh, recognize our clients have a right to choose, but we also try to make them more able to choose, right? We might provide them with information or resources, uh, talk them through that decision. We want them to be as capable of, as, uh, of choosing as, as possible. And we try to avoid imposing our own preferences on our clients. Um, we might have preferences about what our clients are, are, are doing. We might want to shape what they choose, but we try hard not to impose our own uh, preferences on, onto clients when we're working well. And then beneficence, of course, we wanna be doing good. We don't want to think we get up in the morning, go work with clients and we harm them. Um, we have a, a, a responsibility not to be harming our clients and to actually be providing them with something that has value to them. Uh, and we all work very hard at that. It's a, a something fundamental that drives us. Now, autonomy and beneficence are frequently in tension and not always a lot of the time we can do both at once and they uh, don't conflict but there are a number of situations and some of the most complex situations that we encounter where supporting self-determination and doing good are not aligned and they can uh, pull on one another. And this is a, a slide we use a lot. It's a, a pretty uh, instructive concept that neglect overprotect continuum. Um, and you can see on one side, overprotect. Overprotection is about beneficence. It's about trying to do something good uh, even if it's really not aligned with what the client wants, but you've prioritized this goal of providing something good for the client. So this is a quote from a clinician who's thinking in this way, prioritizing beneficence, autonomy is less important here. We can get her to do the right thing. Let's arrange things for her. So she has to do it the safest way. Uh, that's what we think of as a, an example of being far on that end of overprotection, overvalorizing beneficence. Uh, and, you know, for many of us would say, oh, that's out of balance, not quite where we want to be. But sometimes we all operate there. Really want my client to do this thing that's going to be good for her. I'm going to arrange it so that she has to. And on the other end of things, the danger of overvalorizing autonomy is neglect. Um, if, we, if we are at that extreme, operating at the neglectful extreme, we've valorized the idea that our client can choose and whether or not that choice is good or safe or creates something of value, we're not keeping that in mind. We're only prioritizing that my client can choose and that can lead to neglect. For instance, if someone is deciding they want to do something that is absolutely unsafe for them, um, but we say it's her choice. We're supposed to support choice. We're supposed to support this client's choice. Let's let her do what she wants in this situation. So the risk at that extreme is neglect. And you know what we try to do individually as clients and what we try to do, especially as a team, is keep ourselves kind of balanced, <laughs> noticing the extremes and the risk at each end and see how we can find ourselves somewhere in the middle where we're balancing these priorities. So we heard both of these ideas quite frequently in this brief vignette. Uh, Rudy and Selena said the pressure if there was any pressure to do anything, it was for the good of her health and well-being. That's where the pressure was coming from. She was declining. She wasn't doing well. She couldn't stay there forever. And we needed to do this. It was a better way to get her out of this risky situation because she was going to be moved along soon. And that would have been much more harmful, much more traumatic. So we're going to save her from what would be an eventuality that is much more traumatic by acting at this point. So really, again, a motive of 
uh, beneficence, of trying to do something good for her, make the outcome as good as it could possibly be. Um, on the other hand, Jean framed this as an example of uh, insufficient attention to her autonomy, that it was an example of clinicians making a choice on behalf of the client, making a choice for the client. We as a clinician know what's right for this client. We've been doing this so many years. We've seen this. We know how bad this could be if we don't intervene and do something. We're going to make a choice on behalf of this client. And Jean makes the point that, boy, that's tricky. We don't actually, we don't know her whole story. We're putting ourselves in control of someone else's choices is tough to do when we, we, we just are seeing bits of how it is that they got to this risky situation. So this is the tension here, autonomy and beneficence, uh, uh, and a need to figure out where the proper balance would be. So we're going to go into a breakout room. And uh, when you're there, I want you to think about and talk with your group about these two issues. Let's see if we can apply the concepts of autonomy, valuing the right to choose, your client's right to make his or her own decisions, and beneficence, the desire to do something good, to produce something that's good for your clients. What did you see in the video that were all about advancing autonomy, making autonomy more possible for this client? What were the things that you saw that were about advancing beneficence, making something good for this client? Okay, I think we're mostly back. Again, thanks for using the chat. Let us know uh, your observations, uh, thoughts you had that uh, were helpful from your breakout room. We'll go back in with a group again in just a minute. Um, anyone want to say a couple words about uh what happened in your group in the chat any any observations too much time not enough time anything you'd like to say about your first breakout room no no options for autonomy yeah what in so thank you that is a great observation yeah not enough time i think that's absolutely true is we could spend a lot more time thinking about these and i wanted to make sure we have enough time for the Next two topics, um, so we'll try to keep enough time for breakout rooms as we go forward. But we didn't feel there was any options for autonomy. Really great thought. Does anyone have options for autonomy they came up with in their group? What did you all think in the vignette was um, an action that reflected a belief in autonomy. Any, any ideas? Something someone said or something that happened in the scenario. One thing that occurs to me, this is a woman living in a bus stop for a long time. There is uh, actually a, a lot of tolerance for someone making a choice that uh, was quite ugh, inconvenient and complicated for lots of other people. <laughs> so simply the fact that we got to this scenario suggested to me that there's a lot, uh, a very high value uh, for autonomy in and around this, this scenario, both uh, this particular woman and those that were interacting with her. Um, preserve choices and control the intervention in a safer way than without the outreach action. So here's a great observation that what happened actually, um, you know, Molly didn't go to the police and say, arrest this woman or move this woman to a hotel. <laughs> they said, let's make it a choice. I mean, she actually has a choice. She could go to jail or she could come with us to a hotel. So they in incorporated a choice into this intervention. 
um, to allow her to have the final word. And she did, in fact. She said, oh, all right, I'll go to the hotel. Right, okay, thank you for this. Yeah, lots of offerings. Let's make her lots of offerings to allow her to make a choice toward treatment. And 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 they had, uh, uh, you know, um, it was only when she sort of illustrated she wouldn't choose anything, which is a little weird, right? Like if you offer everything, I think Rudy used the word diligent. We've been trying to offer all kinds of things. She's not making any choice. I mean, that's a, a little unusual. Um, it's not like she's choosing things that you think are the right things. She's simply not choosing. So uh, they tried to take that kind of a choice-centered approach yeah, is it legal to nest at a bar stop? I, I think this is one of those things where um, it's uh, probably not. <laughs> and then at the same time, would the police do anything about it? Probably not until there was a need to do that. So again, an interesting gray area here where it probably is, someone might know whether it is or it isn't, it very well might not be legal technically, but no one is enforcing it. So again, our clients break all the rules anyway. And so we end up also breaking some rules. It's uh, the nature of the scenario sometimes. This is terrific, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna move on. We can obviously continue to have some dialogue in the chat about these issues of autonomy and beneficence are gonna keep coming up. Um, I wanna say a little about a perspective on illness and uh, how we might be able to view this vignette as in relation to our ideas about illness. So I was very struck, Selena said quite early in the vignette, she was nested. Uh, you know, and I think the implication there was she's not moving, but she's described as nested in, in this bus bed. Very interesting frame. Um, and first, just to define for you what I mean by medicalization and demedicalization. Um, medicalization is a process that sociologists, social scientists have described for many decades. It's a process by which certain human conditions and problems come to be defined and managed or treated uh, by doctors or by medical professionals. And uh, many of you may have heard of, the, of this concept of the process of medicalization. We can think of countless examples over the last several decades of things that used to be framed as sort of normal human conditions or regular human problems. And they came to be managed by doctors and by medicine. Uh, addiction or substance use is one example. Uh, dementia is another, which uh, you know used to be sort of just framed as uh, getting old and senile, uh, but now has very discrete medical categories uh, and and descriptions of different symptoms to categorize uh, different uh, versions of cognitive uh, disorders as types of dementia. Infertility is another. Uh, that was not medicalized until relatively recently. Uh, erectile dysfunction, of course, there are many examples of things that became medical disorders when there was a drug that would treat them and target them. That's been explored quite a bit. Social anxiety disorder, which is not the same as shyness, and yet there was a time at which a, a, a version of something like shyness came to be seen as a disorder, a social anxiety disorder and managed, uh, managed medically. Uh, this list goes on. Um, there's also a process that has been called demedicalization. So just the opposite. So things that were viewed as pathology um, that were viewed as an illness or a sickness, um, have been redefined as something natural or normal, or at least something not managed by doctors. And of course, the, the, the most uh, obvious and apparent example, unfortunately, is sexual orientation. Uh, homosexuality was treated as a, a mental health disorder up until 1972. Um, you know, we may have had more complex cultural ideas of this, but there was a long period of time, not too far away, when this was actually defined as a 
of pathology. And uh, psychiatry, not just psychiatry, but others have really had to confront that uh, uh, very unfortunate history of uh, Mm, what's understood to be shaming and stigmatizing a condition that we should not be treating as a pathology. So that's one example of demedicalization. Now, the argument has been made that one thing that has happened recently is the demedicalization of severe mental illness, particularly in the homelessness space, uh, that someone may have a severe uh, uh, mental health disorder, um, uh, let me just move back once before I get into this. Um, a severe mental health disorder, but not necessarily recognized as an illness that is causing their situation. So some have argued that we've seen demedicalization in the homeless space. We're not treating uh, illness uh, as a, a fundamental cause of homelessness and instead considering it as a social cause. So we'll say a little bit more about that. But I wanted to think about her particular situation. So we don't know a lot about this woman, but was she in fact sick? And how does it change if we think she might have been sick? Now, she might have been sick in a way that we would think about classically. Maybe she sat in this bus bench and didn't go anywhere because she'd had a stroke and she actually couldn't move. Um, Maybe she had hypothyroidism, problem with her thyroid that affected her metabolism, that gave her extremely low energy, no motivation, really an inability to move around, swollen legs as well, due to her thyroid, due to just a, a, a gland disorder. Um, what if she was cognitively impaired and didn't really understand where she was uh, or the, you know, the circumstances of this particular uh, bus bench? Um, Again, maybe she had an injury that made, made it impossible for her to ambulate, and that's why she was there. And then also maybe she had a very severe psychotic disorder, uh, and she was delusional, and there was a delusional reason that she was living on the bus bench. So I wonder if you can think about it, maybe your first impression when you saw the vignette, and let us know in the chat, did you assume or did you think there was an illness underlying her situation? And if you did think there was an illness, what kind of illness came to mind for you? And um, if you can, let me know if you have a, a, a normal, a non-ill explanation for her situation. She's not sick at all. She's there for her. We don't have the words for this. Something that's not a medical illness, is a natural or a normal circumstance that explains her situation. Um, what do you think about these questions? Did you think she was ill? Did you assume she was ill? And in what way did you assume she was ill? I assume she had some sort of mental illness. Okay. Yeah, psychosis, dementia. Yeah, and what was it that you know you saw that made you think she might have a mental illness or a dementia? I'm thinking, you know, the fact that she was she had a lot of belongings around her, she was staying put, maybe addiction, maybe she was using substances. That was something that was, yeah, she'd been gathering a lot of things. She wasn't accepting uh, or asking for help. Right, and I'm gonna assume this is sort of, again, when you offer an offer an offer and, and the person's not making any choice, it just doesn't seem right. There's something not normal, right? About not accepting anything. We don't quite know what, but it doesn't seem quite uh, consistent with <laughs> health. <laughs> again, an assumption there, but um, that is one that we tend to make assume mental illness, maybe there was a precipitating event that caused her homelessness and further illness. Good point. It doesn't mean she's homeless because of her mental illness. She may have gotten, ended up living on the street for other kinds of reasons, um, but experienced a good deal of trauma on the streets and exacerbated an illness, including a mental illness. Um, right, again, I'm looking for something uh, um, I appreciate this uh, suggestion, learned helplessness. 
Right. That's not really it. That's what I'm looking for kind of a natural, non-ill explanation. A, a, a learned helplessness. So here's a woman who's been never able to get the help she needs, you know, perhaps has experienced rejection from any number of different services. And she has learned to say no. I mean, she's learned in a way that it's better for her to say no and refuse services. Maybe she's learned that she shouldn't trust people like Selena, Rudy coming around offering her things. Those never turn out well for her. So that's a non-ill uh, explanation for her circumstance. Okay, just looking through the chat. I love it. Keep going, please. Making it hard for me to do all kinds of things at once. I tend to assume most people have been outside for many years, especially in one spot, more likely to have a mental and physical illness. Yeah, we tend to assume, seems to make sense. Maybe she just liked being out there. Possible. Yeah, maybe she just liked being out there. Maybe she kind of did get everything she needed. Yeah, maybe she had an infection. Yeah, I feel there is a mental illness, but it could be pride. So I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but it's a really interesting, important observation. There's an element in her resistance to things that maybe is her protecting herself. She, she again, she doesn't want to be burned. Again, it's happened to her too many times. So abandoned by family. Um, uh, uh, she hasn't been able to work to support herself, but she sure can stay in that bus stop and get what she needs. So again, this is, here's a way to think about her situation without thinking about an illness, but we tend to move toward that kind of an explanation uh, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, legs look swollen. So certainly can be underlying medical problems we have to be attentive to as well. Um, okay, so this is great. Thank you so much for that. So I want to just talk briefly about grave disability, a, 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 not exactly relevant to this situation, but it is an instance where we have decided as a society, uh, specifically in California through LPS, we've decided there's some circumstances, some illnesses where we can't limit an individual's autonomy because of an illness, a mental illness particularly. So the LPS Act of 1968 is the California law that uh, created the conservatorship that we use today. And it allows another individual or agency, a conservator, to act on the person's behalf and to protect his interests when he's unable to care for himself due to a mental illness. And the, the uh, squares that you see here, these uh, different rectangles are from the introduction to the LPS Act of 1968, these were reasons LPS was created to end inappropriate institutionalization. In other words, we should not have this woman in the bus, but just locked in an asylum in a time unlimited fashion for however long people wanna hold her there. That's not right. There should be a process, a legal process for reviewing that. And for someone like this, we want a strategy for prompt evaluation and treatment. So there's some people who need to be evaluated and we need a mechanism to see that they can get evaluated, not just for a mental illness, but let's make sure her legs are okay and so forth. Um, some individuals with severe mental illness can be victimized. And so we need a, a mechanism to help protect them from being victimized. Um, and there are ways we can create a legal system, including conservatorship, that helps people to stay in the least restrictive context uh, possible. So these are sort of the founding uh, impulse for the LPS Act of 1968. And I think the thing for our purposes that's critical to notice is we value autonomy as a society. I mean, we allowed this woman to live in the bus bench for a long time because it was what she was choosing. And who are we to say she can't choose it? She was there for quite a while. And the LPS Act as well, while we think of it as a coercive intervention, in fact, it prioritizes autonomy. It's very strict about the circumstances in which autonomy can be limited. Uh, and there's a, a, a very stringent review process to ensure that those criteria are met. And it's only in those situations that autonomy can be limited. And in fact, there are very few uh, circumstances in which we have a right, uh, physicians or other uh, health professionals have a right to limit autonomy in order to help manage someone's health. Grave disability is one, 
there are circumstances where someone lacks decision-making capacity. That's another situation where there is a right to limit autonomy. And then there's a category called incompetence, which really relates to someone with a severe dementia who's not able to manage uh, most of their self-care needs. So this is the definition of grave disability. So it's a condition in which a person as a result of a mental disorder is unable to provide for his or her basic needs for food, clothing, or shelter. And it's really this, as a result of a mental disorder, uh, that becomes core to our understanding of grave disability. It's not just that the person can't provide basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. It's that they can't do that because they have a mental disorder. And of course, a psychotic disorder is the most common reason that we uh, determine that someone is gravely disabled. Uh, and it's because psychotic disorders are characterized not only by hallucinations and delusions, but also by decreased motivation and cognitive deficits that can impact functioning, that can make it hard for people to manage things like cooking or uh, managing their clothes and their hygiene. These are the sorts of things that go along with this disorder in its severe forms. And so we do tend to assume there are some behaviors that just seem psychotic in origin. They seem driven by psychosis. So staying immobile in one place for long periods of time, it really suggests there's a delusion that makes someone feel they're compelled to stay put. Um, using clothes in ways that is very odd, that, that just tends to be something without a, a delusional thought process or without a lot of internal preoccupation, it's uh, very unusual for someone to be not using clothes in a way that is uh, uh, appropriate. Um, there are some ways that delusional thinking can very specifically impact someone's ability to access help and support. So if you feel you're responsible for keeping a corner safe, you're there for the CIA, you're surveilling the corner, uh, you have a duty to be there, very hard for you to accept why would you accept a placement uh, elsewhere for housing? Um, uh, if you believe the things, the food and the clothing brought to you by outreach need to be approved by some other entity, you can't simply accept them on your own. You need to have some other power to approve them. That's gonna make it hard for you to meet your basic needs. So we're gonna go back into our breakout rooms Brief couple of minutes now, and actually we're not going to do uh, too much of a reflection when we come back out. But I want to think with, uh, have you think in your breakout room about how this issue of illness influences the ethics of the situation, not the legality. I'm not talking about grave disability or whether, you know, she would meet the definition legally of grave disability. But how does the presence or absence of the illness influence your feelings about the ethics of this situation. And uh, imagine she's ill. How does that uh, influence things? Imagine she's not ill. There's no mental illness you're able to verify here. How does that change what you're feeling comfortable doing? Um, and if you have a, if you get a little stuck thinking about this, think about how differently you might respond if your child uh, wakes up Monday morning and says, I have a stomach ache. I don't wanna to go to school today in normal times. How do you treat that? As opposed to if your spouse or your parent says, I have a stomach ache. I don't think I can go to work today. Very different kinds of choices that you might make about how to treat this, whether you think there is an illness or not an illness. Okay, I think we're all back. We want to make sure we have enough time to talk about lying um, uh, uh, before things. And uh, again, we'll use the chat. We'd love to hear any uh, interesting uh, observations you had in your breakout room, some uh, tricky issues that came up for you around illness and not illness. Uh, we'd love to hear that in the chat. And now I'm gonna talk a bit about this aspect of the, the vignette that most struck Gene actually, we shouldn't have to resort to a trick. This was a trick. So I think we would all kind of say that lying to a client is not right. 
maybe it's always wrong, right? Isn't that kind of how we think about it? And and with good reason, you know, we think uh, lying to a client must undermine autonomy. It's always got to be overprotective, right? We're maybe doing it for all the right reasons to make something good, but we're we're doing it. We're taking away the right of that client, the ability of that client to have full information to make their own choice, and that's the thing that we really value. So lying can't be good. And as Jean points out, once we start lying, we're in a pickle. We have to keep lying sometimes, and that's no good. So you know, lying is just not a thing we like to think that we do with clients. It doesn't seem right. Um, so this uh, actually, when we start to think about this, though, there's a lot of complexity to lying, even in a clinical encounter. And so here's one description of the types of lying that can take place within a clinical encounter. Um, so there's lying, which is actively blocking access to information for your client, um, making it impossible for them to learn things. There are ways that we might withhold information from clients. Um, then there are ways that is just kind of non-disclosure, sort of just uh, failing to share something with clients. And then sometimes we are silent and maybe we're silent for good or maybe we're temporarily silent, but we mm, find a way to not say certain things. And then there are lots of ways that we use euphemisms um, to kind of not totally tell the whole hard truth uh, and also ways that we can modulate our language so that the client gets a, a slightly different uh, perception than they might otherwise have had. So here's another way to think about different types of deceptive acts. I'm gonna come back to the chat. I wanna look at that and see once I get through this list here. So this uh, person who studies lying in, in clinical encounter has five levels of deceptive acts. There are lies, evasion, overstatement, exaggeration, uh, concealment, deception through non-disclosure, and then collusion. So times where both the client and the clinician might be uh, collaborating in order to keep certain information concealed. And all of these are, you know, they happen in clinical encounters. You can see uh, the nuances here. So con concealment, of course, has been kind of well documented. Here's some physicians saying, yes, sometimes we lie. Yesterday I did lie to a patient. Um, maybe, maybe uh, you know, to conceal the severity of their cancer. Sometimes I keep back the truth through necessity. Another interesting way to describe a lie or concealment. Um, euphemisms, here's some examples, small thing on the lung, a bit of fluid on the lung, the, the heart isn't pumping quite as strongly as it, as it, as it could, um, rather than saying you're in heart failure, which uh, is the truth, but doesn't sound as good. Um, then we have examples of overstatement. So here's one you might have heard. Some clinicians like to tell people who have had substance use uh, challenges in the past that if you're, if you're an alcoholic, you can't have a single drop of alcohol because you'll go back to dependency. <laughs> and, and, you know, people who say that they might acknowledge, sure, certain people can go back to drinking a little bit, but let's not tell anyone that. Let's tell them they've got to simply be 100% sober. Um, that's going to be best for them. So we might make an overstatement here in order to, again, advance beneficence, uh, sort, of, sort of move that person towards something you think is good for them. Now, collusion might sound a little strange. When would we collude in order to lie? But let's say the client says, I'm living in the spaceship and I'm just fine. And you say to them, it's interesting because I have a sense that your mission here is coming to a close. We have arranged for you to stay at the International Space Station. It's down the street. We have a spaceship that will take you there 
And even if you're there in the space station, we can come back here to the bus stop every day. We can check to make sure your spaceship is okay. So this is kind of a version of collusion, uh, something that's a lot delusional lie, but it's a thing that we're gonna work together on because maybe that's better than confronting the truth. So it's actually pretty complicated to make some firm rules about lying. So here's three things you might tell someone when they need a chest X-ray. None of them are being lied to, but they're getting very different amounts of information. Uh, we need to check that the pneumonia has cleared up. Um, in truth, we're actually also gonna look to see if you might have cancer and that's why you got the pneumonia. Um, and you know, we also wanna check for cancer, but we're gonna use a chest X-ray rather than a CAT scan, even though it's not as accurate, but there's radiation if you get a CAT scan. So this last scenario where the physician is going into a lot of detail, might not be not lying. There's just less concealment there than there is in the upper two. Now, which one is best? Which one is, is critical? Uh, a little hard to decide sometimes. So, you know, one thing I think it would be interesting to think about, are there situations that come to mind for you, you know, where concealment or, or one, one type of a, a lie or misstatement here might actually advance autonomy or advance beneficence. There's some classic examples. Can you think of any one, uh, any one of them about how concealment could advance autonomy, for instance? Yeah, collusion, meet the client where they're at. That's an interesting gloss. Yeah, right. It's like we're going to pick up their view of things and we're going to go with it. Um, and that's going to be helpful. And in fact, might advance autonomy. We might get that person more able to make their own choice because we're like, great, spaceship, fine. I can treat this as a spaceship. Let's figure out what you need in your spaceship to be well. Um, great way to go. Great way to partner. Yeah, love the thoughts here too about illness and whether that did or didn't change things. Almost like whether there's an illness or not, the intervention is, uh, is necessary. Interesting. Yeah, can maintain hope and allow the individual to have more autonomy in the future. This is sort of the classic rationale in a way for some concealment that it can maintain hope. And if a person's not ready to hear the whole truth, it can help them to stay more engaged and uh, uh, present with you around some options than if you were to entirely <laughs> give the whole truth all at once. They're not quite ready to hear. Um, so just to give for you a couple of examples of how people think about when uh, we might use some of these strategies like deception or concealment. Um, it is the case, we all would assume if we're gonna lie, we need a reason. <laughs> we're gonna tell the truth unless we've got a really good reason not to. Um, that, that is true. And if we uh, uh, feel like we have considered what are the truthful alternatives we could use, what are the moral arguments for and against lying to this person? It's gonna help them make choices better on their own. It's gonna to help to advance something we know is gonna be healthy for them. Um, and would I feel free having everyone know, um, as Molly did in our scenario, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm doing this. <laughs> this is the right thing to do. I'm comfortable with people challenging me on it because I, I know it's the right thing to do. Those are circumstances where I think we can you know, many people would say we can feel comfortable with our lie for our clients at that time. This is just an example. It actually sort of matches right precisely with our scenario in the vignette. Um, sometimes when we're working with someone who is delusional, or just don't think they're going to be able to make an informed choice about something. And uh, if, I, if I don't lie to this client, they're going to make a choice about something that's going to uh, outweigh the good that could come from telling the truth. And uh, unless I lie, this, uh, the client is going to have more challenges. Uh, I'm stuck. I've got no other course of action. And this is actually really what we heard from Rudy and Selena in the video. We, we had no other choice. We considered all the ways to uh, pr uh, proceed with truth. And it just didn't seem like I was going to keep her safe. So 
just want to point out, and I'll, I'll uh, actually just go through two quick slides. You know, we could decide that in a social context, lying is no good. We're never going to endorse that. But sometimes in a therapeutic context, maybe concealment or lying is not always wrong. And the truth is that the power imbalance in our relationships uh, do sometimes mean that lying feels a little bit different ethically in a therapeutic encounter. So, you know, one way to think about this is when my clients lie to me and they say I'm taking all my medications every day and never miss a dose, I'm absolutely religious about that. And I, and I know for myself, you know, I think they're maybe not telling me the whole truth. You know what? I'm okay with that because it's a way for them to assert their own, uh, their, their own priorities to resist the, my power or the, the imposition of the medications in a certain way. And I, I'm okay with that. It's a form of resistance and that, you know, I can, I can live with that. Um, you know, and at the same time, there are clinicians who might lie in circumstances we've seen because they're trying to produce something good for the client. They're doing it for the right reasons, trying to get that client to a safer place, sometimes life or death, get them to a safer place. So the truth is in relationships where there is a power imbalance, uh, there's leading and following on both sides. Um, so my client who says, sure, I take my meds all the time. I would never miss a dose. What are you talking about? That, yeah, they're asserting their power. And at the same time, they're saying to me that they're with me. I respect my doctor. I won't tell her that I don't want to do as she says. <laughs> I'm not going to come and say, I don't like your meds. I'm not going to take them because I respect you. So something about that lie that is also a form of just still being there with me. We're both dependent on one another. And, and in the same way, when a clinician lies or when a clinician uses, I mean, lying is a big deal for all of us. So anytime a clinician is going to conceal the truth, you know, I'm going to assume they're doing it from a good place. They're trying to help the client. They uh, uh, really want to help their client. And, and they're kind of powerless to do that at some times. We can't always make our clients do things that we know are safe. And that, that, that's, that's not easy. You know, I actually think it can be useful just as a very end. It's 2.30 now, so I'll stop here. We won't do our final uh, breakout room, but um, maybe in the chat, you know, let's think a little about who had power in this relationship and what kind. And in the short run and in the long run, how did this lie change what was going on in the relationship between outreach and this woman at the bus bench? What, what, what did this lie change? What did it produce? We've already said she's still housed. She was able to to get into housing, it allowed for that to happen. Um, we also had an example of a really useful collaboration, uh, a way that law enforcement could be used not to harm or traumatize her, but to move her to uh, a better place. Um, any other ideas about how lying in this vignette uh, uh, produced something and shifted something about their uh, power imbalance? Let me give you one more set of questions here, again, about what happened. The trick, as Jean called it, would you say, was it a, a concealment? Was it a lie? We're going to have to move you along. You're going to go to jail. Uh, was it a euphemism, an overstatement? How exactly would you characterize what, what happened in the vignette and what they, uh, what they said to her? And, 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 and how do you feel? about the impact that it had. Any ideas about lying? Any ideas about an overstatement? I don't think the police department was truly prepared to, to put her in jail. Yeah, yeah. So it's a police officer really who exaggerated and made an overstatement. Maybe an overstatement another way. Very well might be a week or two down the road, they would have made a different choice and they would put her in jail. I mean, that was what Selena was indicating in the vignette that this was going to happen. She'd be moved along maybe to jail one way or another. We're just making a, a statement now. It was a lie, could have ultimately been an overstatement. She could, it's true, she could have moved along on her own. We don't know what was gonna happen down the road. 
we can't assume she was going to be arrested for being there down the road. We just, we don't know what would have happened to her. Any other thoughts about that light? Wasn't a true emergency. Yeah, I didn't, didn't seem like it was true. Although, you know, when Rudy and Selena talked about it, they did, did just sound like an absolute urgency. She, her legs were swollen. They'd tried everything. They thought she was going to die there. Um, and they had a room for her. They actually had a place she could go. So kind of a, a safe, safe opportunity. And actually, they didn't know how she was doing. She could very well have been quite ill. This happens frequently. Once, once we have someone, uh, you know, in a safe setting, we realize, oh my goodness, they really are sick. I think the client had all the power. You know, this is what struck this. What struck me about this scenario too. This client had so much power at the beginning of this. Again, she's, you know, taking up this whole bus stop and, and, and everyone feels helpless to know how to, how, how to help her make sure she's safe. And then, you know, using this trick really did shift things. Um, she might've been moved in the following week. Yeah. Yeah. Why wasn't she hospitalized? Now there's a lot we don't know about this story and it might very well be that she was hospitalized or maybe moved to the hotel and then needed a, you know, she'd need medical clearance and so forth. So a lot of that we didn't hear about, but you're right. Yeah. She probably did need to be medically cleared as we say, so to have someone evaluate her physically, that would be a thing I, I think would be necessary in this case, and, and as many people are mentioning, a lot of times what we do here is not have a hotel room available for someone, but we, we have them on a hold and they do go to the hospital and they get medical attention. So that's maybe an even more common scenario here is using a hold for something like GD. Um, yeah, the trick allowed her to accept the help. She did not know she was ready to accept. This is a, a thing that is very important a situation like this. What happened next? We don't see this in the vignette, but what does she say about this situation later? We might assume she's mad. She's never going to talk to these people again. Um, she, you know, they've done this trick to her. They've lied to her. She'll be mad at them. In fact, you know, in my experience, most of the time that isn't what happens. And the person tells you after the fact, I felt awful there. I couldn't fix it. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't find a solution for myself. And someone had to do something for me. Now, again, we don't know, but we shouldn't assume that she uh, was upset that this happened to her. And in fact, might, in retrospect, frame it as something that was um, a thing that she didn't know she needed, but she knows that she needed it that sort of a thing. It's so critical if you find yourself in a situation like this uh, to go back. I mean, it might be a year later, six months later, two years later, reflect with the person. Tell me, gosh, did we do right by you? Did we make the right choice for you? What was going on for you then? What should I have done? What did you need from me then? And so forth. We learn so much when we're able to go back to someone after the fact. We've made a tough choice. We don't know what, whether it was the right thing to do for them. Find out, see what that person can tell you down the road about what they thought uh, of the choice that you made. It can be so instructive for us. And thanks again for joining today. Thank you as well to KSA Productions and to Remy and your team and Selena and Rudy and Jean and everyone who helped to make this vignette. It's just a wonderful resource. I'm so glad we could uh, hear about this story, share in the complexity of it. It's been so useful. Really grateful to you for that.